Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Many musicians are genre hoppers these days, but few have an inventive take on every style they touch. RBMA alum object could be an exception to the rule. His audacious sound design and meticulous arrangements on labels such as Hessel Audio, Leisure System, and Power Vacuum have served to buckle and twist dance floor conventions. Object's 2014 debut album, Flatland, consolidated his influences. IDM, electro, techno, industrial, and ambient, among others, into a sonically adventurous narrative. His 2018 follow-up, The Introspective Cocoon Crush, deploys a more organic sound palette of Foley recordings and ASMR-inspired textures in service of more personal themes. In parallel, Object has built a reputation as one of the must-see DJs of his generation thanks to a highly technical mixing style that no doubt owes some inspirational debt to his years working as an instrument developer at music software company Native Instruments. In his lecture from Red Bull Music Academy Berlin 2018, Object delved deep into the intricacies of his sound design process as well as his meticulous approach to DJing. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. It's pretty nice. <laughs> it's a nice room. <laughs> no, it's, it's nice to be back. Um, I had a really great time at the Academy in New York um, five, six years ago. Um, and it kind of feels like coming full circle a bit. Mm, good. So let's get right into it. Um, as someone that's always really enjoyed listening to your work, um, you strike me as someone who's always been quite an imaginative person, someone that's quite keenly aware of sounds and how they affect you and how you move around in the world. Do you feel that you were, you've always been quite an imaginative person? I don't know, actually. Um, I feel like... In, in a way, my, 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 uh, my approach to sound is more about letting uh, processes and equipment do the imagination for me and arranging the results of that myself uh, rather than being someone who necessarily comes up with the ideas in, my, in the first place or originates the ideas. So um, although there's aspects of my music which... Um, might be unconventional. Um, I think I might uh, struggle when faced with a blank canvas to, to be imaginative in that sense. Okay, if you don't start with a black canvas, what do you often start with? What's in front of you at home that you tend to reach for first? I mean, it could be anything. It could be, it could be a, a synth or a sample or... Um, uh, a drum rack, but a lot of the time it has to be it has to be um, something with an element of uncertainty or uh, uncontrollability, which uh, which I can, the results of which I can then sculpt or steer into the right direction rather than um, create the 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 kind of humanism to begin with. What do you mean by humanism? Um, I mean, anyone who makes music with a computer is quite intimately familiar with the, uh, the feeling of uh, listening to a loop over and over again and um, getting very frustrated by how stale it becomes and how little variation there is, how it feels like um, there's, no, there's no life to it. Um, and I feel like a big part of making the kind of music that I make is uh, trying to give it a, like a lifelike aspect and um, try to make it dynamic and, and um, kind of responsive and enjoyable for the listener in a way that goes beyond just like following a, a repeating pattern over, over four bars. 
Speaking of responsive, actually, uh, your mum was a working musician mm-hmm. when you were younger. Yeah. What kind of music did she make? Uh, she was a composer that um, she wrote some library music. She did a couple of film scores, um, quite a lot of music for ads, that kind of thing. She also um, did she compose something when she was quite heavily pregnant with you? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, she was definitely playing the piano while I was well, while she was pregnant with me. Yeah, um, I would quite merrily kick along to that while I was while I was in her tummy. So the kick is key. <laughs> um, did you ever start playing around with the things that your mum would have made music on? Then, do you remember anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually, my introduction into the world of making music on anything other than like conventional instruments was playing around in her studio. Um, I mean, I say studio, it was a, it was a pretty rudimentary um, home studio with like, what did it have? I mean, it was, it was controlled by an Atari ST. I mean, this was the 90s. Um, so there was an Atari ST controlling, with Cubase controlling like a sampler, a couple of sound modules, um, a mixer, um, and like a synth or two. She would use it in uh, very much the way that like a composer would use it rather than like a, a dance music producer. I mean, obviously at the time I was completely unaware that halfway around the world uh, people were using it, using basically the same setup to make jungle, for example, or early techno. Um, I literally used it to uh, record cover versions of Tear, Tears for Fears songs. It's <laughs> a strong choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I actually wonder if those tapes are still around somewhere. I'd listen to that. Um, so tell me when you say that she worked more like a composer than a dance music producer, what kind of language did she start to talk in with you maybe about sound and music? I actually don't recall talking to her that much about composition. It was more about piano. I mean, you know, I would have been about 10 at the time, but she was a, you know, she was, she was a classically trained composer. She, um, she was a very, very... Uh, gifted pianist who then went to uh, Berkeley to study composition and arrangement. Um, and she would, uh, I mean, she would arrange for, for ensembles and orchestras and, and, uh, and vocal groups. And in a way, I think, I, I, I think she was probably most comfortable um, writing, writing notation on paper. And, and the, the home studio setup existed for her to be able to make demos that would subsequently be recorded in, in actual studios, but, but uh, she was like a composer and arranger first and foremost, rather than like a, a, a producer. You didn't go to study music at university, you did something quite different. No, I studied engineering, like electronic engineering. Mm. Whereabouts did you study that and what was kind of um, expected of you? in studying that? Like what was expected of you by your teachers or by yourself? Like what was the course that you were supposed to go on with that? Um, so I studied engineering at Oxford, which is a pretty general course, at least initially. I mean, I did two years of learning about, uh, learning as much about like, I don't know, car engines and bridges and all the rest of it as I did about uh, circuits. And I ended up specializing in my third and fourth years in more into electronics, but also into information engineering, which covers like signal processing, image analysis. Um, not not really focused on on music or audio at all. I mean, we would be learning about like I don't know uh, technology that would analyze a, uh, an X-ray for possible tumors, or you know. Um, radio transmission, this kind of thing. Um, so it wasn't, there wasn't really a creative element to it at all. There was a lot of maths, it was very theoretical, um, and it was pretty academic. So it, it, it certainly wasn't, a, it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't anything to do with music. But um, the signal processing side of things did relate pretty strongly to what I was exploring on the side at the time, which was getting more and more into electronic music production, having spent most of my teenage years playing in bands and like playing drums, lugging amplifiers around, um, you know, uh, 
this whole kind of uh, being in a band thing, which I did for, for a good few years. Um, got sick of that, ended up getting more into, um, that, that would have been around the time that I was getting more into DJing and, and, and making music on a computer. And it was pretty interesting being able to independently put two and two together with some of the instruments and plugins I was using and some of, some of the uh, more uh, fundamental technical mathematical things I was learning at university, like thinking about how sound actually works, thinking about what it means for sound to be a waveform, what, what information this waveform can contain, what, what features of this signal are relevant to how it ends up sounding and how it can be processed and what these processes are doing to it. So I'd say it was, I mean, it, while, while I didn't study um, anything explicitly music related at university, it definitely shaped, um, it, it shaped my understanding of, of audio and laid the groundwork for, for the job that I ended up doing from there, um, which was uh, doing signal processing stuff for uh, native instruments. So you mentioned that signal processing was an element of your degree that you found particularly interesting, and then you mm -hmm. go on and develop for native instruments as essentially a signal processor. Can you kind of break down a little bit more what that actually means? Like, what is that job? <clears throat> sure. Um, so officially I was a DSP developer, which DSP stands for D Digital Signal Processing. Um, I was a software developer working in mostly in C++, some MATLAB. Um, but whereas most software developers um, would be able to put together a, an application that you could use and that would do something useful, um, and might not know much about how, uh, how audio works, I, as a software developer, probably couldn't build you an application that did anything useful, but I could make a drum machine for you. Or like I could analyze a circuit, like an analog circuit diagram, and get an idea of what each component was doing and how that could be recreated. Um, in software algorithmically. Um, I would have more of an idea of like what signal was coming into a particular piece of software and what signal was going out and what you would have to do to that signal in order to get it to sound a certain way. So in a sense, it's like a creative problem solving. There's a, I mean, there's definitely a creative aspect to it, but it's highly technical. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, Depending on how you approach it, it can be more or less technical. I mean, there's DSP developers and engineers working for, uh, I don't know, um, car audio companies or like uh, building radios or building x-rays or, or uh, doing stuff which is primarily technical where there are specific like criteria and technical requ requirements that need to be fulfilled. And there's DSP developers that are involved in making synthesizers and instruments where obviously there's a, there's a, a huge um, aesthetic and objective component to it where it has to sound good and has to sound better or has to have a certain kind of personality to it, um, which is, I would say that, I would say that's a creative task, yeah. It's really interesting when you say things like, I try to get something to sound better or something to sound good. Mm. For an engineer, probably like a purposely naive question, what does that mean? I would say that that question itself, the answer to that question itself, or even the question, is as much a part of the design process as the answer. Like, how do you quantify better um, when you're talking about uh, a, a problem that is ostensibly an engineering problem but um, is as much down to personal taste as anything else. I mean, what is it that makes uh, a particular compressor or a particular synthesizer sound good? And 
why is that not a figure of merit for every compressor and every synthesizer? Like if one synthesizer sounds good because X, then why doesn't this one sound good if you make it more X? Um, and, and that's precisely what gives um, all of these uh, older analog instruments so much character is because they have, uh, uh, they have all of these weird quirks and idiosyncrasies that work well in the context of their own of them as an instrument as a whole. Um, but you can't necessarily take one characteristic from one device and expect it to translate well across everything that you're trying to design. Maybe as an example then, what is, um, what is or what are some machines that you would have been working on in that regard that you kind of looked behind the Wizard of Oz curtain, as it were, as an engineer and saw how they worked and how you could change their elements of their character, as you described? Um, let's see. So I spent a couple of years working on the, um, I, I designed some of the, some of the drum synth modules that went into Machine 2, which came out a couple of years ago. I worked on the more electronic sounding ones, because um, there, there were some very electronic synthesized ones and some more kind of acoustic sounding ones, and I did, I did the former. Um, and as part of that, I spent a long time looking at, uh, for example, the waveforms of a 909 kick drum or an 808 kick drum and trying to figure out not just how these things were generated, but what is it about the shape of the, of the oscillators, of the envelopes, of the way it's put together. What is it that makes these sounds so iconic and uh, effective at what they do? And what I learned was that you can change certain things about them and uh, retain the character of the instrument. You can change other very minor things about them and they'll sound completely different. And the fact that someone without the help of computers managed to design these things in the first place is, is a miracle. It, I mean, I guess a lot of these circuits were happened upon by accident. A lot of them were uh, developed like very precisely and deliberately. Um, I've lost track of what the question was, sorry. <laughs> Well, tell me a little bit about the shape of these waveforms. And everyone that makes music sees a waveform in whatever piece of equipment or software, hardware, whatever they use. When you were like picking through these machines and looking at these waveforms, and how did you start to visualize them in your own head? Like, would a sound have a shape to it if you heard it? That's a big question, I guess, because on the one hand, you've got the actual shape of the waveform, which is very easy to visualize. I mean, you look at it, you look at, you look at the waveform on a computer, or you, uh, you divide up the, the, the synthesis process into different blocks, whether it's oscillators or, or, um, or envelopes or filters or whatever, and you look at the, you look at the signal before and after each component. Um, and that's one aspect of it. The other is looking at sound more macroscopically and more of a kind of synesthetic kind of way and uh, from like a more of a kind of a metaphorical standpoint, like does the sound feel uh, a certain way? I mean, does it have a texture? Does it have a, uh, an emotional quality? Does it have a, a, a mood? Is this soft? Is it hard? Is it uh, bright? Is it dull? Um, I guess when I was working on these instruments, it would mostly have been the, the former way of looking at it. Like I would, I would think, um, I would look at the the, the waveform of a of a kick drum and think like, okay, um, this was made with a certain kind of oscillator, which has been shaped with a certain kind of pitch envelope and maybe filtered with a certain kind of filter. Um, but in in that line of work, the devil is very much in the details, and you can't like, you know, it's very easy to say that. Uh, a 909 kick drum is kind of a triangle wave uh, with a pitch envelope um, going down and like a click at the beginning and say that that's what it is. But, you know, give me a, a, a triangle wave and a pitch envelope and a click and I would struggle to make you a 909 kick drum without like really 
hacking away at the details until you ended up with a waveform that sounded exactly the same. Um, it's, it's really like 90% detail work and 10% principle. So what is the 10% principle then? Um, running an oscillator through a pitch envelope. <laughs> okay, it sounds like, like you say, the devil is really in the detail here. So you worked at Native Instrument for years and years, and at that same time, you are, you are making your own music. Mm. Um, how much of your work being a developer and thinking about these things, thinking about these details, impacted how you made your own music? Um, I used to think not that much, actually, but in hindsight, I think it must have done, must have done quite a lot. I don't think it. Um, I don't think it had a huge impact on like my uh, creative process as far as like the melodics or songwriting or song structure or anything like that goes. But in terms of shaping how I viewed um, sound and audio and sound design. And even in terms of like a few uh, aspects of like the workflow, I think it had a pretty profound effect. I mean, for a start, um, one of the things that you, when you're spending all day making instruments, um, I mean, any of you that have that have uh, that that primarily work with uh, computers and make electronic music. Um, will be intensely familiar with the experience of tweaking a kick drum all day long um, and getting really frustrated at like losing all sense of perspective uh, and not really knowing whether it sounds good or sounds bad. Um, if you do that, imagine doing that, but instead of making music, you're making the thing that makes the music and you don't have any music to show for it at the end of the day. You're You're tweaking the parameter ranges and parameter curves of a synthesizer that makes a kick drum. Um, it drives you absolutely, absolutely spare. And you come up with like all of these ways to avoid going crazy um, while making these instruments to maintain a sense of, uh, of perspective and objectivity in your work. And that's something that does translate across to, um, to writing music. So like, it did teach me to approach um, production more methodically, I think, to pay more attention to rigorously comparing how it sounded before and how it sounded now, how it sounds now, um, keeping better track of uh, what I'm actually doing, not getting too carried away, thinking of signal chains in terms of like what is each element doing rather than, uh, oh, I'm just gonna throw another saturator on there and hope for the best and just like, you know, just keep like wrestling with this thing until maybe it sounds a bit better. Like it, it did make me work more methodically, sure. Does your workbook folder look like <clears throat> track 147.2, 147.3, 147 147.4, all the little yep. tasks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, my, my workflow, uh, it's been like this for a while actually, but, but, but is now, it, it, it's methodical to the point of, um, to, uh, to the point of being dogmatic. I mean, I will religiously at the start of every session, well, at the end of every session, I'll, uh, I'll do a render of whatever I've been working on save it under a particular version number, and at the start of the next session, the first thing I'll do is open the, open the, the last render from the previous session, listen to it, um, ideally in like iTunes, not in, not in Ableton, because that way I won't be tempted to make any changes. I'll listen through it, I'll have a text edit document open, and as I'm listening, I'll make notes with like timestamps and make notes as I go along of what I want to change. Um, and they can be as, these notes can be as as, uh, <clears throat> as broad as get rid of this section entirely, or this, uh, this bass line sounds like shit, or um, I like this part, or it could be as specific as um, this one little glitchy noise needs to have a bit more high frequency, or um, shift this, uh, this, hi-hat back by 20 milliseconds. Um, and so at, at the end, I'll usually have like a, a, a set of like between 
five and 20 things that I want to change. And I'll open Ableton and try and be as uh, meticulous as possible, meticulous is the wrong word, as, as strict as possible with myself uh, only doing those things. When I'm done, I'll bounce it again and just keep repeating the process until, uh, until there's nothing left to change. And for me, that um, having, the, having the, the, the recording from the previous iteration is tremendously important. And I think that did actually come from, at least partly from uh, working at NI, because it really hammered home the importance of having something to compare what you're working on too. Um, particularly if you're someone who, like me, goes very deep into detail and can spend months working on a track or hours working on like one particular sound. If you don't have, if you don't have a point of reference, if you don't know how it sounded before and you're just letting yourself get sucked into this wormhole, then uh, who knows where you'll end up and who knows how you'll be feeling about where you've ended up and whether you'll be able to actually locate where you are in the broader space of music and sound. It's a very thorough answer, thank you. <laughs> um, a characteristically thorough. Um, you're an engineer and developer, you worked at Native Instruments, you have this very technical, learned language with which to explain your processes and ideas. Mm. When it comes to people who have not worked at Native Instruments, who are not trained engineers, but do make music and are intrigued by this way of working, what are some <clears throat> tasks that somebody making music at home could do like you've described, but without necessarily the education of an engineer? Is there something that you would maybe recommend that that people could do along that kind of line of thinking? I mean, all of the stuff that I've described isn't really engineering related, it's just workflow. Um, and it's what works for me, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily work for, for everyone. In fact, like, I would hesitate to recommend my, my workflow to, to anyone, to be honest, because it's inc incredibly time consuming and laborious and it drives me nuts. But given that I'm someone that takes so long to make music, it's just one kind of coping, coping mechanism that I've developed to uh, to allow me not to go completely insane. That's another way in which I think about sound. Like, although um, although I've been using quite uh, technical terminology, I guess um, up until now, like uh, I do also tend to approach sound from the other direction as well, just like how does this how does this sound make me feel what is it what is it what images does it conjure up like what direction does it pull me in and um, texture and uh, and and glue and mood are equally important to me uh, as like the the technicalities of how, of how it was actually made. Um, Let's think about like um, this is like a compositional tool. So, mm. for example, mm. um, something that's very common that people do when they're making electronic tracks is a field recording. You know, they go out into the world with a little task cam and they record around themselves, take it home, turn it into a sample pack, turn it into a track. Now, even when you're doing that, it's not totally random. You know, you're, sure. you're, you're deciding where to go, your ears are attuned to certain sounds, and then you make decisions with that recording. So even a field recording is a, a process of choice and decisions. Sure. When you're working with sounds that are really synthetic and digital, where do you figure in that? What are your choices about things that give you sonic satisfaction so it actually has like an emotional value for you? A lot of, a lot of it is just kind of following your nose, you know, like you, you, uh, you hear a sound and you feel like, oh, I, I, I'm interested in, the, in, in this particular texture in it, or this particular transient or attack, or this particular harmonic that appears a few seconds in. How can I emphasize that? How can I make more of that? Um, for example, a lot of the, the, the melodic elements of my tracks um, originated not with me playing on a synth, but like uh, pitch bending some sample or recording or resampled sound into oblivion until a particular set of kind of weird 
warped harmonics came out. And I thought, oh, actually, this kind of conveys an interesting mood, or this fits well with some other part of the track. And I just kind of work from there, whether it's by chopping up that particular bit and stretching it out more, or processing it with like a long reverb or something to draw it out. Um, or for example, I don't know, maybe in, in, in processing some other content, I'd hear a particular percussive sound that I liked and wanted to embellish somehow in order to turn it from like a kind of random clunk into like a really powerful drum. But on its own, that clunk isn't enough to actually have any impact. So it's a question of like, it then becomes a question of what is this sound missing in order to push it in the direction that I want it to go in. Speaking about direction, uh, I want mm. to read you something that Brian Eno said in right. 1986 because it got me thinking about your music. Um, the thing I've most disliked about a lot of recent music, particularly music done in sequencers, is that it's totally locked. For a listener, that is very uninteresting. Instead of going for a walk in a fantastic forest, it's like being on a railway line. Sure. Um, I guess there's a couple of inter interpretations of that. Um, the the first and maybe more obvious one is is uh, is he talking about a, a, a fixed grid like a fixed tempo? There's no uh, you're playing to a click basically, um, which actually is something I've been experimenting with uh, more recently, particularly with the new album. Um, quite a lot of like automating the master tempo um, over the course of a track so that you can't really tell where the count is. Um, but even if you, uh, even if you are working to a fixed grid, which, to be fair, like most people are doing most of the time, um, I think that is. Uh, I mean, that is one of the one of the, the big challenges of writing electronic music um, is how to make it sound, um, how to make it sound like it's going somewhere in a way that that doesn't just sound contrived. Um, and for me, having this sense of uh, this sense of direction running through a track is really key. Like, um, I guess, I guess, propulsion maybe is a key word here. Like, I like music that I make and listen to, for that matter, to be somehow propulsive. That doesn't necessarily mean there's always someone with their hand on your back, like pushing you forward the whole time, but. Um, a, a track for me needs to have a sense of um, what it's trying to achieve and where it's going from here. Um, and I think that was actually one of the reasons why um, I used to struggle so much with writing more loop-based kind of functional dance music, because as a crutch, I would tend to um, write tracks in kind of modular blocks, like almost more of like a verse, chorus, breakdown, chorus, verse, whatever structure, as a means of maintaining interest, um, which is something that I still do. Uh, I feel like I'm kind of going off on a tangent You're here. Going maybe. for a walk in a fantastic forest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Th that, that's one approach to making music, I suppose. For me, one of the, one of the fun and rewarding parts of uh, making music particularly when you have such a, a, a long and tedious and convoluted workflow, is when you realize that something in the piece of music that you're working on could have a certain interpretation, and you lock onto that, and you start following that as a means to get to a particular creative goal. And so when I realized, oh, this is what that sounds like, what can I do in order to bring that out? How can I emphasize that? How can I shape the rest of the, of the piece of music around this? So tell me a little bit about sonic satisfaction and ASMR. What kind of roles do they play? And some people get a lot of like physical satisfaction out of very particular kinds of sounds. Mm. Um, I mean, I would be I would be lying if I said that um, AS, ASMR, like explicitly, and the the online ASMR community were like a massive influence to my work. Um, I only, in fact, I only like really started reading more about it like quite recently. But this whole idea of 
sounds having a um, physically satisfying quality is interesting to me. Um, and it was something that I was kind of unknowingly exploring um, even a few years ago or, or longer, like uh, just realizing that the physical impact of a sound was uh, something to uh, explore, but also to, to strive for and aim towards in, in, in my work. Um, but I guess whereas before, that would mostly come from synthetic processes, I guess, or maybe even like by accident, um, I would be, I don't know, using like granular time stretching or abusing the Ableton warp engine, for example. Um, I realized more recently that actually, um, if I want a particular kind of satisfying texture or impact or um, kind of reverse sucking sound or anything like that, um, there's nothing stopping me from just drawing from the wealth of actual organic recordings at my disposal, whether it's recording them myself or like um, using like uh, film sound design sample packs or um, sampling off the internet or whatever. Um, and yeah, I've been having a lot of fun using more kind of organic sounds to uh, accomplish the same thing, but with a slightly different palette, like less, less kind of crunchy and, and bit crushed and much more just open and almost honest sounding, I guess. Okay, so you're making all this music for pure personal sonic satisfaction, and then you go and take it to get it mixed and mastered. Mm. What kind of relationship do you have with a mixing and mastering engineer when tempo is not the main concern, when this is something that feels really satisfying to you, and then you've got to take it to someone else and they decide it should maybe sound one way or the other or something else? How do you have those conversations? Well, first of all, I don't think, I don't think, uh, the, I don't think tempo is really a consideration here. Um, whether it sticks to a fixed grid or not uh, doesn't have that much of a bearing on the mixing or the mastering. Um, but in terms of uh, what kind of conversations you should be having with a mixdown engineer or a mastering engineer, I mean, I, I, I've always mixed down my own stuff, uh, largely because for me the, the, the mixing process is um, completely integral to the, the, the songwriting process because, um, you know, I mean, so, some, of, some of my tracks have like upwards of a hundred of channels and to hand that over to someone else to mix down um, opens up so much, uh, well, I was gonna say opens up so much potential for the track to sound completely different, but I think that's kind of the case no matter like, no, no matter the arrangement. Um, no, I mean, for me, I, I, I mix down as I go. Um, but uh, in terms of mastering, I don't know, it's always a trade-off between um, having a clear idea of how you want it to sound and what your expectations from the process are and being willing to give up your own creation to the, the um, objective and technical viewpoint of someone else who might have a, a much better listening setup and a much deeper technical understanding than you do. Um, what to say really, I mean, I mean on, on, on the one hand it is worth uh, bearing in mind that by the time, by the time you've finished working on a track, particularly if you're mixing it down yourself, you have a very entrenched view of how you think it should sound that might be colored by your own listening environment, but even more so by your own experience with that track and uh, your own feeling of, uh, your own like quite colored feeling of how the 
elements and the frequencies work with each other and it is very worth getting another set of ears to kind of even that out for you. On the other hand, it's also very true that mastering engineers come in all shapes and sizes and some of them, uh, you know, you can, you can give it a, a, a pre-master to three different mastering engineers and get three drastically different results and none of them none of them is right or wrong and it's up to you to pick a mastering engineer whose work you respect uh, and also tell them what it is that that you're looking for and I think this is even more the case when dealing with uh, mixing engineers because the, the the scope for change in a mix down is an order of magnitude greater than the scope for change in a master. I mean, the mix down can completely shape the way that uh, a track feels when when you listen to it. Like you can, uh, it's you know, it's not just a case of like emphasizing some elements and de-emphasizing others. I mean, it's a case of of it can be a case of totally recontextualizing a track. Um, <laughs> That was a kind of long and winding answer that I'm, where I'm not really sure where the take-home points are, take on points are, but I guess I guess it's basically a trade-off between um, acknowledging uh, acknowledging your own limitations in objectivity and maintaining your own uh, creative vision um, and remembering what it is that you want to get out of out of a particular piece of music that you're working on. You quite struck me earlier by using the word honest when it came to this sound. Sure. Um, we're talking about technical expertise, things that give you sonic pleasure, things that, you are, that are personal to you. What are you being honest about? I guess what I was, what I was going for, um, talking about sonic honesty, was, um, I don't know, a much more clear sound in which everything exists in its own space with pinpoint clarity and it's not so glued together by overall processing. Um, it's not so obscured by uh, like kind of synthetic textures. Um, it's more like, I don't know, like a clear starry night. So we've talked a lot about your music production. You're also an absolutely amazing DJ. And I'd really love to, like, uh, I would Thanks. really love to speak about your DJing, but also we've been talking a lot about, you know, textures and honesty and all these very minute, minute details. Uh, but something that really strikes me about your DJing is you have this, the, a phrase that you've used before, this, this energy contour. Mm. It's not tempo and going from A to B to C with, uh, with beat matching as your concern. This is something that really takes a fantastic walk through a forest. As a DJ, I mean, it is still beat matching, like, uh, and and that's for me one of the one of the uh, necessary creative limitations is that is that generally I would still need everything to, to every track to feed into the next um, kind of tempo aligned, obviously with sometimes with with uh, breaks if I need to switch tempo, but um, I don't know, I I. I like the idea of thinking about musical progression in terms of uh, like a multi-dimensional space where you're always moving forward in time, but um, there's a lot of different axes or variables uh, that you can that you can traverse in trying to illustrate a musical point, whether that's how hard the music is or how sparse or dense it is, or what kind of emotional um, color the, the, the music might have, whether you're trying to intensify the experience or give people a break, whether you're going up or down or left or right. Um, and this is something which applies, I think, equally to DJing, but also to sequencing an album or even uh, the progression across a single track which in my more self-indulgent moments I've been guilty of as well, you know, making like nine or 10 minute tracks that, that, that uh, are supposed to, be, supposed to be club records, but like, you know, go off on their own garden path. Nothing has to be a club record. Nothing's supposed to be uh, anything other than what you want it. Sure. One of the main variables, particularly in a, in a club set where people are, are 
dancing, and that's like the f the functional purpose of um, of a DJ set primarily is the the intensity, I guess, the the the, the energy, um, and that can go up and down, and it can trace interesting shapes, and it can go sideways while still staying at the same intensity. Um, it can change tempo, it can change mood, um, and uh, for me, DJing is largely about um, finding a balance between tracing uh, an interesting and varied route and staying as focused as I need to be in order to maintain the the energy of the room and the interest of the crowd. What kind of um, techniques and approaches do you have to actually put that in action? Like, what kind of tricks have you developed for yourself in this current philosophy of DJing? Um, well, there's a bunch of mixing tricks. I, I, I tend to I tend to mix pretty quickly and using like quite a lot of like rapid fader movements and stuff. I, a lot of the time I'll be like, you know, cutting back and forth with the cross fader or taking the EQ in and out. So there's like the kind of performance aspect, aspect of it. Uh, and the other side of it is extremely rigorous uh, and methodical organization, <laughs> maybe unsurprisingly. Um, just how organized um, are you as a DJ? What do you mean by organized? Um, I have a very extensive list of quite functional uh, playlists and playlist folders in Rekordbox in which um, tracks are sorted into like the groups that would be most useful to me, whether that's genre or um, mood or intensity. Like for example, um, I have several different techno folders that are organized by kind of mood or setting and then each of those playlists is organized by uh, kind of hardness factor, I guess. Like when I add functional techno tracks to record box, I'll, I'll tag them with like a number from one to 10 according to basically how banging they are um, and then sort by banging. <laughs> so you've got like uh, quite minimalist stripped back uh, polite tracks at the beginning and like real kind of face melters at the end. And then outside of functional techno, it's maybe not so appropriate to sort by like bang factor. So I generally tend to sort by tempo, but um, I'll have playlists from for anything from like uh, genre stuff, like, I don't know, disco or EBM or uh, electro to uh, moods like, I don't know, coming up for air or uh, kind of emotional bangers or uh, floaty rollers is a recent favorite of mine. Um, also like some very utilitarian playlists like really long tracks for when you need to run to the bathroom or like uh, long beatless tracks for when you're playing an opening set and there's no one in the club yet. Um, one area that I've gotten quite into recently is, is polyrhythmic mixing. Um, so I have a couple of, uh, well, a few, for, a few playlists of tracks that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that could be interpreted in different tempos depending on how you count them. So for example, there's quite a lot of, um, quite a lot of tracks that, um, well, I say a lot, I mean, it's all relative, that there's a number of, of artists out there making music that would kind of fall into like, triplet drum and bass at 85 BPM or 170, but could also be mixed straight into uh, stuff that's at 128 BPM. Um, and I've had quite a lot of fun recently uh, playing in this weird kind of gray zone where you're not quite sure how to count it. Um, and those lists, for example, uh, play quite well with uh, the floaty rollers or like things with... Uh, with a with a constant metronome, but with no kick drum, like arpeggios and and kind of uh, tracks that that roll along propulsively, but without like a defined beat, uh, and then you can kind of dip in and out of two different tempos depending on how you're feeling, which can be quite fun. Um, what else? Big folder of like 
set openers, big folder of set closers, big folder of like ambient interludes for switching tempo. Um, yeah, all, all kinds of lists. I spend way too much time on this. If you have so many lists, what keeps you feeling instinctive and thinking about reading a room? Because this feels like this is all very much happening in your little zone that you've already prearranged. How do you go out into a room and decide, oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is the instinct that I'm working on. A lot of that comes from vinyl, actually. Um, because I still play quite a lot of records. And for me, um, although I do kind of organize the bag of records that I bring with me as well, obviously you can't keep a, a, a stack of 50 records uh, organized to, to, to the same degree as you can digital files in various playlists. So if there's, um, if there's a moment where I'm feeling like I'm kind of, uh, everything is a bit too controlled and I just want to throw a spanner into the works, I'll just go through a stack of records and pull something out that I think would be fun and just see where that leads me musically. Um, obviously, like, this is all while keeping an eye on what's going on in the, in the crowd because ultimately, while I do like doing my own thing, it's much more fun to do your own thing to a crowd that's actually enjoying themselves and, and um, you know, I don't want to punish people. Like, my job is still to, to facilitate people's enjoyment rather than, rather than, like, go on, like, get lost in, like, a prog rock wormhole in the DJ booth. <laughs> in that case, then, um, through now two albums, lots of more club-focused records, becoming more skilled as a DJ, what do you feel that you now enjoy most that perhaps you didn't even think about at the beginning? What have you really come to enjoy? Weekends off. <laughs> okay, object, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main academy event in one city. But we also do various things around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, do check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us uh, while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. For now, thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom.